Now we look once again this evening at Acts, and we are now at chapter 24, and I will read to you this evening the entirety of chapter 24 of Acts. Acts chapter 24, beginning at the first verse and reading through the end. Let's pay heed now to the way in which God speaks to us in his word tonight. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you you, we enjoy much peace, and since by your sight, most excellent Felix, reforms, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in everywhere, we accept with all this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we, have not, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from, find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or setting <clears throat> stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in a synagogues or in the city. Neither they can, can they prove to you what they are now being <clears throat> proved they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is res with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but having some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus 
and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you give your word for our benefit, and we acknowledge to you, O God, without the work of your spirit in our hearts, and you, O Holy Spirit, directing us in our study of your word, we would not always see that benefit. And so we ask, our Father, that you will work in us, and we pray, Sovereign Spirit, that you will open us to understand your word and then to live it in the way that will be honoring and pleasing to you. And we make our request to you in the name of our sovereign Savior, Jesus. And together we say, Amen. Unless you have been living under a rock, you know that this year is an election year, a presidential election year in the United States. And you might also know that the election process Uh, kicks in in some official way tomorrow. On top of the beginning of that official election uh, matters, uh, we also happen to have a holiday tomorrow, and that happens to be Martin Luther King Day. Some of you won't have to get up and go to work because of that, and that may be the best part of Martin Luther King Day. But both of these things in some way come together because they, they direct us to think about how Christians relate to those governing authorities that God has established. And and it is the case that you will be called upon to carry out your responsibilities as as a citizen in a constitutional republic, and that will require you to think a little bit about how you relate to those governing authorities. And not only will you have to think about that, but you will have to think about that in a context where everybody's trying to convince you not to think your way about those things, but to think their way about those things. And tomorrow, if you reflect at all on Martin Luther King, uh, you will remember that Martin Luther King judged that the way in which he went about trying to bring what could be called a revolution in American life, he did so as a part of his Christian ministry. That's the way he judged what he was about. And so as we come to this text tonight, it seems to me it has a, has a unique and particular kind of relevance uh, for us. And Paul's example and statements may offer to us some help as we think about about what we're going to confront throughout this year, this year of an election. Uh, The Apostle Paul was uh, charged with defiling the temple, and we've looked at this. And you'll remember that he was arrested and uh, sent to stand trial before Felix, uh, the governor. And he had already been examined by the rulers of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, and uh, that uh, he got into a melee there, and the Roman soldiers had to rescue him. And so let's look at the way in which Paul defended himself and see if we can learn something about how it is as God's people, we, we speak, if you will, we testify to those governing authorities that God has established. Now, the text starts off by telling us a bit about the charges against uh, Paul. And the first thing that we know is there are two people who are pointed out as representing the Jews along with some of the elders that came. One of those is Ananias. And Ananias and the other Jews come to Caesarea at the bidding of Claudius Lysias. That is the tribune, that's the commander of the barracks in in Jerusalem. 
And you may recall, we looked at this before, that Claudius Lysias wrote a letter to Felix, and in that letter he states uh, that he ordered Paul's accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Now it's not just that they sent representatives, but they sent Ananias, he's the big cheese. Uh, Ananias is the uh, high priest, that's who he is. And so he came uh, to, to this uh, uh, hearing before Felix, and so we know something about the importance. Uh, we know very little about Tertullus, except that he's a spokesman, we would probably call him an attorney or a lawyer. We don't know much about him, other than that he has a Roman name. Uh, he may have been a Roman. Uh, surely he was uh, conversant in the Latin language. His, um, his uh, uh, name may reflect that. Now, as we look at the way in which Luke unfolds this, we see, first of all, that Tertullus begins his address to Felix in what was a very customary manner. And the use of praise to the presiding judge was, was the ordinary way in which uh, attorneys did things. And there was a very obvious way, obvious reason for doing that. You said nice things to the judge with the hope that the judge would do nice things for you. It was that kind of a, an approach. And this was common. It was ordinary within uh, trials in the ancient Roman world. Uh, in the case of Tertullus, though, he, he goes to extremes. Now, William Barclay claims he used almost nauseating flattery. And those present would have been aware that much of what Tertullus said was, was just false, that's all. Uh, the peace that they enjoyed was because uh, Felix ruthlessly, I mean, uh, so that the Romans recognized his ruthlessness, uh, he ruthlessly uh, 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 crushed any opposition. Uh, he didn't bring reforms. He brought, uh, as one person says, brutal persecution. And so uh, even though Tertullus uses the ordinary and typical beginning, it seems to me he does so without any integrity. Keep that in mind as we look at the way in which Paul addresses him. Uh, Tertullus also adds that he will be brief. And if you know lawyers, you may think, oh, that's a good thing for a lawyer. And uh, uh, maybe the only people who ought to be more brief are preachers. Uh, but uh, if, when we look at this business of being brief, it does call to mind something that I think I'd remind you of. And that is, we don't have a transcript of this trial. All that we have are what Luke thinks was necessary and important. And so he puts it down here. And as we look at this, there will be some things that we wish maybe that Luke had been a little bit more expansive in telling us about what had happened. Now, we don't know how brief Tertullus was, but surely he wasn't as brief as those few verses that Luke has in what he says. Uh, the first charge uh, that uh, Tertullus uh, brings to Felix against Paul is uh, that he's a plague. Uh, perhaps a better translation would be Paul is a pest. And that is, he goes around making trouble throughout all the uh, you know, empire. He's a troublemaker. And he charges that Paul stirs up riots. And he not only does that in Jerusalem, but he does that throughout the whole of the Roman world. Now, Tertullus is, is, is a smart lawyer because by talking about someone stirring up riots in, Roma, in the Roman Empire, that would have been a serious charge because one of the things that the Roman uh, rulers prided themselves on was that they were orderly. 
They, they, they prided themselves on their ability to, to formulate and enforce laws. And so here, uh, Tertullus is accusing the Apostle Paul of being a pest, a troublemaker, who goes around stirring up riots throughout the, throughout the world. And he makes a second charge against uh, Tertullus, uh, against Paul, Tertullus does. Besides being a pest, he accuses Paul of being a, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. This is just another way of saying that Paul is a Christian. That is, he follows Jesus who came from Nazareth and the Christians got the name of being, particularly Jewish Christians, got the name of being Nazarenes. And Tertullus tells us then that Paul is not just a follower of Jesus, but that he's a ringleader. He's, he's an outstanding one. He's someone who's out there in front of everyone. And uh, this charge is clearly true. And as we look at the way in which the Apostle Paul responds, he will acknowledge that as well. The third charge that is made is that, uh, that, that Paul profaned the temple and this is a repeat of what happened in the temple uh, when the Jews, with the Jews, and when they rioted and Paul had to be uh, rescued. You may remember that some Asian Jews saw Paul in the, uh, in the temple and they said that he was bringing Gentiles into the temple and this started the riot because Gentiles were only allowed to go as far as the court of the Gentiles. I've explained this in the past. And uh, they actually had a sign up there. You go any further, you're going to get killed. I mean, that's pretty blunt. Uh, that was what, was, uh, what happened. So, so this is the accusation that Tertullus makes against Paul. Um, uh, Paul then uh, offers his testimony. Paul responds. And Paul begins his defense, you will notice, by, by doing something that's a bit similar to the way in which Tertullus starts. He, he does the same thing, this customary way of saying nice things about the judge. And he says, I'm glad that I get to uh, defend myself in front of you, Felix, because you have been uh, the, uh, the ruler, the governor, uh, for, for a number of years, for a long time. Now, you, you will not only see something similar about the way in which Paul does this, but you will also see something dissimilar about the way in which Paul does this. Now, Paul maintains his integrity. He uses a customary pattern of courthouse behavior, of courtroom behavior, but he does so by maintaining his integrity. And I think we got to keep, a, keep in mind that uh, distinction. We'll come back and, and look at it as well. Um, uh, Paul tells Felix that he had only been in Jerusalem for 12 days. And he says to Felix, you can, you, can, you can test this out. You can verify this. You can find out if that's true or not. And the reason why Paul says, I've only been there for 12 days is that if he was causing the kind of trouble that Tertullus and the rest of the Jews said, he's, he's, he's arguing, I couldn't have gotten that done in 12 days. You just don't get a whole city in an uproar uh, without a little bit of planning. You can't uh, uh, get your riots started that quickly. And so this is the, the part of the defense that the Apostle uh, Paul adds, uh, offers. And, and Paul adds that there's no evidence that he was uh, disputing with anyone in the city, in the temple, or in the synagogues. There's just no evidence at all. And Paul's main point is that there's no proof of the charges brought against him on the behalf of the Jewish leadership. They just don't offer proof at all in their, their uh, uh, accusations against the Apostle Paul. 
And uh, when Paul is accused of following the way and being a leader, Paul readily admits that without any reservations. He not only acknowledges uh, that he's a Christian, but he also points out something of what that would mean. And here I think we have to notice the uniqueness of the way in which the Apostle Paul integrates his defense of himself with his statements about what the Christian faith is. And the first thing that the Apostle Paul tells us, uh, tells Felix is that he is a member of some of the sect of the Nazarenes. Yes, that's true about him. But he also claims to be a Christian is to follow the God of our fathers. And his point here is that what he believes and what the Christian faith teaches are necessary components of the faith of historic Judaism. The very things Paul believes about God as a leader of the Christian community is also what the, Christ, what the uh, Jewish fathers believed. And by these fathers, uh, Paul would be able to say he believed the same things that Abraham did, that Isaac did, that Jacob did, that Moses did, that David did. All of these important people uh, to, the, to the Jewish leadership, people who would say that they were successors of those Jewish leaders. Paul wants the Jewish leaders and he wants Felix to recognize his claim to be a faithful follower of the true God. And if anyone is to follow the same God, he must then, the Apostle Paul is contending, believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's, the God, that's, the, that's, that's his argument about he is a follower of the God of their fathers. Now, Paul adds that he believes everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets. This is a part of his confession, and in my judgment, this is simply an elaboration of his argument that I follow the God of our fathers. That's what I do. Now, Paul is contending that he believes the law of Moses. And in that contention that he believes the law of Moses, built into that is the Pauline notion that Jesus comes and he fulfills all the law. He didn't come, Jesus tells us himself, he didn't come to destroy the law, he didn't come to get rid of the law, he came to fulfill it, you see. And that, that is a, that is, that's when Paul talks here about him being a, a follower of the law, the Apostle Paul is telling us that he believes the law and he believes the law in the way and the manner in which the Father in heaven intended it. And so his point is that the accusations against him are fallacious because he's committed to keeping the law. And we'll, he'll elaborate on that a little bit more. We might even think about some of the things that may have been in Paul's mind, things that Luke actually includes. For example, when he, he records in, in, in the third chapter of Peter's uh, 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 sermon there, you'll remember that Peter goes back and, and addresses things from Deuteronomy 18, where Moses, one of the fathers, uh, the author of the law, if you will, talks about one who is going to come uh, to succeed him. Someone is going to come to succeed Moses. And that's, that's part of what the teaching of Deuteronomy 18 is. And Peter makes the point, and my judgment is Paul would assent to that, and that is that if you believe the law, if you believe Moses, then you have to believe that Jesus is the one who comes, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that claim that Moses makes in Deuteronomy at chapter 18. Now, Paul also says that he believes uh, all that he adheres to all of the prophets writing. Now, for example, Paul believes that uh, Isaiah predicted the work of Jesus. In Romans chapter 4, uh, he refers to Isaiah 53, and then he ties Isaiah 53 to what? The resurrection. 
And then he goes along and he does that here as well. So as we see this scant things that, that uh, Luke has recorded for us, as we look at the way in which those connections can be made, we see some of the things that Paul's doing. As Paul ties the, res uh, uh, the prophets to the resurrection, he claims that it is the hope he has in God. And he then says something that's, that's very difficult to understand. He says, this is something that these men themselves, referring to the Jews, to Ananias, and to uh, the Jewish elders were there. Now, this is a tough one because we know uh, from uh, Luke's pre previous record that, that the Sadducees, who were a part of the Sanhedrin, who, were, uh, who was Ananias, was the leader of them, and he's probably a Sadducee, uh, surely, and, and so when Paul says that he believes these things, uh, it's very difficult to understand exactly uh, what that means. That, that uh, uh, did they attest to it? Uh, you re you'll remember recall that Paul saw the divisions between the members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, those on one side were Pharisees who believed in the resurrection. Those on the other side were the Sadducees who didn't believe the resurrection. So it's very difficult to know what Paul means by this. But nonetheless, what Paul, I think, is arguing here and what uh, Luke is trying for us to get is that, that believing in the resurrection is something that is compatible, it fits in with what Paul is arguing, I am a true Jew. I follow the faith of our fathers, I follow Moses and the law, I follow the prophets. And we looked at this before, that in Paul's talking about the resurrection, the way in which that comes up again and again in, the, in, in Acts, it is a way of confirming the validity, the efficacy of the work of Jesus Christ. So it seems to me that's what Paul is doing. And we have to be careful when we look at this, we don't get stumbling over all the problems that are there. Um, Paul also continues, and he says that they found me purified in the temple. And you may remember that when Paul, uh, when he came to uh, Jerusalem, uh, the leaders of the church told him to, to pay the uh, money that certain men who had taken a vow uh, had to pay. And part of this involved Paul in kinds of purification. And as Paul says this, that they found me pure there, what he's saying is that they found me not just being a follower of Moses, not just being a follower of the prophets, but they found Paul as following the traditions that had grown up with the way in which you would get purified to help out and to participate together with these men who had made this vow. So, so Paul is saying to them, your accusations against me about being separated from Judaism are clearly wrong. And there's a sense in which I would argue that Paul is saying, you're not a true Jew, I am. And a true Jew is a Christian. And a non-Christian, a, non, a, a Jew who's not a Christian is not a true Jew. It seems to me that's, that's a part of what Paul is arguing as he brings this point across to his people. And... Uh, and then uh, Paul goes on, and uh, Luke records for us what might have been the most relevant uh, of all to the Roman court, because he says, he starts off by saying that, that those Jews should be here. Uh, those uh, Jews from Asia should be here. And why should they be here? Because they were the ones who accused Paul of defiling the, uh, the temple. Uh, Luke doesn't complete the sentence. He just says they ought to be here. And the reason why Paul highlights that they ought to be here is because Paul's a Roman citizen, 
And as a Roman citizen, one of the things, one of the privileges of Roman citizenship was that when you were accused, your accusers had to come and accuse you in open court. And as a matter of fact, there was a Roman law. If you accused somebody and they went to court and you didn't show up for court, then you were guilty. You were arrested. You see, you were doing something illegal yourself. So Paul is, is pointing this out that, um, to show that, that they uh, uh, were false uh, uh, charges against him. He's trying to point this out. Uh, Paul recalls his statement before the Sanhedrin that he believed in the resurrection as hope. Uh, we've gone over all of this. He repeats this again, and he does tell us it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Um, again, Paul, as he talks about the resurrection, in my judgment, is, this is shorthand for Paul talking about because Jesus was raised from the dead, all of the things that people, all the things that Christians have been telling you about Jesus, about his suffering, his death, about his work, about all of those things. This is the testimony of God the Father, uh, the, uh, the, the Father of the Jews. This is a testimony that we find in people like Moses and in, in David. Uh, all of them have pointed to this Messiah, and God is saying, this is my Messiah, this Jesus. It seems to me all that is tied up together. Now, uh, the, the trial uh, seems to uh, uh, stop abruptly. We don't really know anything that happened uh, in, in any interaction between Paul and Tertullus. That's just not recorded for us. But we do know that the uh, trial stops and Felix does not make any kind of a judgment, a public uh, decision about uh, Paul's guilt or innocence. Instead, he gives this, this, this sort of goofy uh, response. He says, I will wait until uh, Lysias, uh, the tribune, comes, and then I will make a decision. Now, that's silly. Why are the Jews there? Why is Ananias there? Remember, we talked? Claudius Lysias wrote a letter and said, I told these people to come. But what else did Claudius Lysias say in that letter? Well, he says, he wrote, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. Uh, uh, Felix knows <laughs> the judgment of Claudius Lysias. He wrote it down, sent it to them, and that's why the trial is going on. He's already made that commitment uh, there. And so then Felix confines Paul to custody. I assume he stayed in Herod's Praetorium. We don't know for certain. That seems to be where he was. Uh, and the nature of Paul's uh, confinement is not really very clear. There were different types of confinement that he had. We do know that uh, Felix said that your friends can come and meet your needs, which probably meant food and clothing and visitations and all of that. Uh, was Paul chained? Was he chained in a room or was he chained to a Roman? We just don't know, but he did have some freedom that was there. Luke tells us, though, that, that Felix had an accurate knowledge, a rather accurate knowledge of the way. And it's difficult to know just what Felix knew about the Christian faith. And did he know that Christianity was uh, uh, going out throughout the empire? Uh, was that his knowledge in terms of the Christian faith? Or did he know something about the doctrines of the Christian faith? And we, we really don't know what he knew about it. And many speculate that what he did know about it came uh, from his wife, Drusilla, who happened to be um, a Jewess. And... Uh, um, 
he must have understood something and how Luke, what Luke means by an accurate understanding of the Christian faith is, 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 is another one of those things that is very difficult for us. But regardless, um, uh, Felix invites Paul to come and meet with him and with his wife. Now here's where it seems a little bit of history can help us because Josephus tells us, first of all, that Drusilla is beautiful. He tells us also she's probably under 20 years of age. He also tells us that Felix convinced her to leave her husband and come and become his third wife. And I think that helps us to make some understanding of what it is that Paul talks to Felix and to to Drusilla. Um, Luke writes for us, he says that uh, Paul's statements was that he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, as well as about a faith in Jesus Christ. And from what we know about Felix and Drusla, uh, Paul's uh, presentation of Christianity must have been not general, but quite pointed, I mean, right on, if you will, uh, to the situation in which Felix and Drusla found themselves. And as a matter of fact, Paul must have been persuasive enough that he, he scared them. <laughs> Uh, they, they, were, they were frightened by what Paul had to say. And uh, um, uh, historians uh, describe uh, Felix as a, a cruel governor. One commentator uh, uh, describes him uh, in this way. He says, his cruelty and rapacity knew no bounds. I mean, he was, he was known as being a terrible person and a terrible uh, leader, just brutal and And so uh, whatever it is that Paul says to them, he scares them as he talks about judgment and these things. Now Felix keeps uh, Paul in prison. Uh, First of all, uh, we know he keeps him in prison because he hopes that Paul will give him a bribe. The second reason he keeps him in prison is that he hopes to get favor with the Jews. And so we see this this story, this unfolding of Paul's involvement in in a specific trial, in a specific governmental kind of thing. And it does seem to me that we can draw some lessons there. Before I jump into drawing some lessons, maybe I need to give a little apology. As some people are bothered by uh, taking Paul and using him as an example, in particular uh, in the book of Acts. I happen to belong to another tradition uh, that is a long time one in, in uh, Presbyterianism where we look at the book of Acts and we draw from the book of Acts uh, uh, certain lessons about how the church ought to function. Uh, One of the reasons why we're Presbyterians is because we draw much of our polity, if you will, much of our practice from examples in the book of Acts. And so I think it's a legitimate thing to look at Paul and to try to draw some conclusions about how we address, how we deal with with the governing authorities, that the ones that uh, God has has established. And um, uh, it seems to me that Paul... uh, uses some very standard ways of dealing with political leaders. Look at what he does. He, he follows the same pattern of Tertullus in saying nice things about the judge. He engages in courtroom behavior that is acceptable courtroom behavior, but the distinction about the way in which Paul does that and the way in which Tertullus does this, as I've already pointed out, he maintains his integrity. And I do think there's something we can draw from that, that as Christians, it's not for us to 
to run away from engagement in those civil kinds of things, those dealing with and addressing uh, the governing authorities. It's not for us to run away from them. It is okay, it's right, it's proper for us to engage in them and to use them. But the one thing I think we have to remember is the thing that we see from Paul, is that we need to maintain our integrity. Now, in the next few months, there are going to be people who are going to try to convince you about how you ought to exercise your franchise, and they are going to do things that if you follow them, they are going to compromise your integrity. That's just going to happen. We know American political uh, uh, debates. We know American political campaigns. And, you know, if you got a dollar for every lie that was told, you could retire very soon. You know, you could retire in luxury. We just know that about us. So we can engage in these things, but as we engage in these things, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is to maintain our integrity. And we can't let those things around us uh, keep us from doing that. And I think Paul provides us here with a, with a very good example of how he was able to do that. Um, uh, there are, are uh, Paul uh, does very well at, at also situating his presentation of the gospel in the midst of this trial. Look at the way in which Paul talks about these things. He's, he's accused of being um, someone who is disruptive of Judaism. And yet the Apostle Paul takes that, engages in the, 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 uh, the courtroom scene, in the trial that's going on there, and central to what Paul has to say is, I am true to the fathers, I am true to the scriptures, to Moses, I am true to the prophets, I am true to those things. And I think that's something that, that we as Christians, as we think about engagement, is that we have to remember to keep first things first and second things second. And what is first for us? You know, you may all jump on me when I say this, but being an American citizen is second, at least. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is first. And we can remember that. And, and in the midst of the political campaigns that are going on around us now, and people are going to tell you what it means to be a Christian, and they're going to define what it means to be a Christian in terms of political matters, not in terms of your relationship to Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did for you. And I caution you about that. I caution you about allowing people to define your Christianity apart from the way in which the Apostle Paul defines his Christianity, that he believes in a Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead, and that is his hope. And so as we think about political matters, it seems to me it's very important for us to keep that in mind. Paul never loses sight of the gospel as he vigorously defends himself. The other thing I think we have to recognize here is that Paul does engage. Uh, it would have been very easy for the Apostle Paul to say, ah, I don't want to be bothered with it. Uh, uh, you know, they're dishonest, they're lying about me, and they're all cheats and liars. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And just to go around feeling sorry for himself and withdrawing. And again, uh, not only on the basis of this passage, but on the basis, it seems to me, of much of what the scriptures have to say, that it don't seem to me that Christians can just withdraw from our responsibilities that God has given us in the countries, in this nation in which we, in which we live. Um, 
Uh, Paul knew these things about the uh, leaders of the church. He knew uh, of the uh, uh, um, temple. He knew about uh, the reputation of Felix. He wasn't ignorant of those things. And yet Paul vigorously engages, and he vigorously engages as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we may ask ourselves, well, how is it that Paul is able to do that? And this is my speculation about that. Because Paul is the one who told us when he wrote in Romans chapter 13, he said in that very first verse in Romans 13, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul knew that the Roman Empire had all kinds of problems. Paul knew that Felix had all kinds of problems, moral and all sorts of other ones. Uh, Paul knew all the problems that were a part of the Sanhedrin and, and the Jewish life at that time. And yet the Apostle Paul knew that every one of those people was there because God had established that, those, those governments, those rulers, those authorities, that he had set them up. And Paul also knew that the God who had established those people had made them so that they will exist, he also knew that was the same God who called him. Look at the way in which Paul describes himself, for example, in the first few chapters of Romans. He's called to be an apostle. He's called to be one who goes into those places where God has established his rulers, and what is he supposed to do when he goes there? He is supposed to be the messenger of the gospel. And so when we, when we think about our role in, Christian, in, in government as Christians, we have to remember, we have a government because God has established it. And that government gives us opportunities in which to engage. Paul was in a place where the government gave him the opportunity to defend himself. And he did defend himself, but in defending himself, he was very clear to keep the gospel of Jesus front and center. So in this... Uh, uh, presidential election year, you're probably going to be confronted with all kinds of occasions to address political matters. People are going to want to know what you're going to do, and they want to know what you're going to do so they can convince you to do what they want you to do. I mean, that's what's going to be going on. That's, that's just a part of the way in which uh, political campaigns are, are uh, carried on in this country. And so I encourage you to fall, uh, follow the Pauline example. Don't run away from opportunities. Engage in the dialogue, engage in the talk. Don't run away from it, don't be, but don't, don't allow yourself to be dragged into things where you somehow, by the way in which you engage in the political matters, uh, to lose your integrity, to lose your commitment uh, to the gospel. And most of all, uh, keep the focus on the biblical truths about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, about your faith in him. Your political views are not important, but remember that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus. That the reason why you are a Christian is because Jesus Christ came into the earth, onto this earth, and Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and Jesus Christ died upon Calvary's cross, and Jesus Christ died upon that Cal- on Calvary's cross to take and bear the punishment of the sins of his pe- for the sins of his people. In Jesus' death, you are purified, you are cleansed. Uh, go back and remember the last series of sermons that Larry preached on forgiveness of sins and what Jesus did for us. But remember that. This Jesus died for you and purchased you. He made you his follower. You're in this country. God has put you here. He's put the rulers here that we have. And he's called upon you to carry on a part of your your participation in that is to choose leaders. And as you do so, 
Remember, whoever you choose is secondary to the one who chose you. You may vote for a president. Jesus Christ died to bear your sins. He was raised again by the Father to testify to you and to all the world that Jesus' death cleansed people from their sins. That's the one that in all of your political maneuvering, all of your political engagement, is to be first, be a follower of him. That's the way in which we testify to the governing authorities that God has established. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you're in control of this world. And we pray that we might not forget that you have established those governing authorities that exist. And we pray, Father in heaven, that as we engage in the political process, that you'll give us grace, that we might first of all, that we might always first of all, remember that we're followers of Jesus. And oh Lord Jesus, work in us, cause your spirit to give us courage, to give us insight, and to give us the ability to faithfully be your followers. And we ask this for your name's sake, and we say together, amen.